I'm Mia Clark, host and producer of Dreams of Black Wall Street. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform, especially if you want to help us get the word out about this history, these stories, and the work we're doing. Thank you so much. performed by the Sunset Four Jubilee Singers in 1925. By now, it's pretty well documented that Harriet Tubman used this song to instruct enslaved persons to get into the water to avoid being seen or having their scent picked up by slave catchers. This is what was called a map song in which the directions were coded into the lyrics. Speaking of water, let's talk about some creatures that live in salty and or coastal waters, oysters. Oysters were an incredibly popular food source in 19th century New York, both for working and upper-class people. As a result, the oyster industry was an extremely profitable sector of the local economy. We've already discussed the African-American restaurateur and abolitionist Thomas Downing, who owned a famous oyster house in Manhattan. Well, New York was renowned as a port city surrounded by plentiful oyster beds. Oystering would also prove to be a path toward freedom and financial independence for African Americans prior to and following the Civil War. A remarkable example of this is the free Black antebellum community of Sandy Ground, located on Staten Island. The first historical record of Sandy Ground is dated 1799. 
but it wasn't settled by free blacks until nearly 30 years later. According to the Sandy Ground Historical Society, Sandy Ground boasts as the, quote, oldest continuously inhabited free black settlement in the United States, end quote. Located on the southwestern shore of Staten Island near large amounts of oyster beds, Sandy Ground was a once bustling community supported by farming initially and later oystering, beginning in the 1840s. According to Columbia University's Mapping the African-American Past project, in 1828, right after New York State abolished slavery in 1827, an African-American man named Captain John Jackson bought land in Sandy Ground. He was the first Black person known to have done so. Eventually, other freed African-American and Black families from New York, Delaware, and Maryland joined him. The community was first called Harrisville, then Little Africa, and finally Sandy Ground, a reference to the type of sandy, dry soil found on that part of Staten Island. Because many of the early Black inhabitants of Sandy Ground already had knowledge of the oyster industry, such as oyster gatherers who were fleeing violence in the Baltimore, Maryland area when they arrived in the 1840s, they were able to capitalize on the popularity of oysters in the 19th century. This is key because, as noted in previous episodes, at this time there were a limited number of options for working-class African Americans and people of African descent to earn an income in pre-Civil War New York. By using their knowledge of the oyster industry, as well as their tenacity, Black settlers in Sandy Ground were able to carve out a life for themselves in a place that offered them more economic opportunities or independence without as much of a threat of race-based violence and discrimination as in other communities. Sandy Ground is also believed to have been a stop along the Underground Railroad. Quote, at its height, Sandy Ground contained more than 150 Black-owned homes. As was typical of the free Black communities that developed during this time period, the church was an integral and often literally central asset to the community. The Rossville African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church was first established at Sandy Ground in 1850, relocated to a purpose-built place of worship in 1854 on Crabtree Avenue. The network of AME Zion churches throughout the city had many renowned abolitionists among its congregants, including Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass. Civil rights leader Reverend Thomas James called the Rossville congregation his own. End quote. That was a description of Sandy Ground by the Cultural Landscape Foundation, a national education and advocacy nonprofit that connects people to places by making the heritage of shared landscapes more visible, highlighting their value and empowering their stewards. Next, a testimonial produced by the organization featuring Reverend Jacqueline Norton of Rossville AME Zion Church, speaking about the historical significance of Sandy Ground. Um, like I mentioned, a once progressive African-American community dating back prior to the American Civil War. And it was also a junction on the Underground Railroad. And the now Rossville Amy Zion Church, built in 1850, uh, was also used as a central meeting place uh, for freed slaves. It was the settling ground for many of the freed slaves who... Um, settled from 
areas like Maryland and Delaware and, and came to um, Rossdale or Sandy Ground. One of the reasons that um, many people are drawn to the rich history of Sandy Ground is because the history is like storytelling. Um, which would you would like you would find when you visit the Sandy Ground Museum? The museum is home to the largest documentary collection of Stan, of Staten Island's African American culture and history. But for me to um, be, it's like beholding something that I've never experienced before, and um, it almost makes me want to take off my shoes sometime and walk barefoot just to feel the sandy ground under my feet, you know? And um, there's a song that we sing, um, one of the hymns, um, this ground is holy ground. And as I walk on that, that ground and, and, and walk up to the front door and just sometimes just walk around on the property. Sandy ground should be preserved just in the same vein that any history um, should be preserved. It doesn't. It didn't just evolve. It came from the sacrifice of freed slaves with with very little resources, very little um, community support that we have today. But even with that um, inadequacy, they were able to become prosperous businessmen. They were able to become homeowners. They were able, and I, and I marvel at how these churches that they built uh, are still standing after all these years. You know, so Sandy Ground should be preserved in the, in the, in, in the history books. And I think uh, what I'm, I'm, I'm moved to do is um, to do a um, personal documentary as well for the church to have that, 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 that we can uh, pass on. Uh, from generation to generation about the history, intentional history about Rossville A.M.E. Zion Church and Sandy Ground. It's sacred. That's why it should be preserved. Uh, because when you think about the freedom, the freedoms that people have been able to enjoy because of the history of Sandy Ground and Rossville A.M.E. Zion Church, it's sacred. We are standing on holy ground, and I know that there are angels all around. Let us praise Jesus now. We are standing in his presence on holy ground. And we thank God for the angels that are standing around because there's a cloud of witnesses um, standing around the Sandy Ground area and the Rossville AME Zion Church. Those who have gone before us will always have those cloud of witnesses.
Library created an expansive archive of interviews with different people from various historical communities across the city called the New York Public Library Community Oral History Project. It includes the Sandy Ground Oral History Project, which contains interviews with more than a dozen members of the Sandy Ground community. Some were direct descendants of the original founders of Sandy Ground, others were born and raised there, and some have lived in the community for nearly 100 years. One of those interviews is with Julie Moody Lewis, president of the Sandy Ground Historical Society. We're at 350 Richmond Terrace, and we're interviewing Julie Moody Lewis, and she will give you her remembrance of Sandy Ground. Julie is the current president of the Sandy Ground Historical Society. Sandy Ground. That was a community that I was born in, the community that I'm connected to, the community that gave me my foundation and my frame of reference as I've grown to be a young woman, a mother, a wife, a grandmother. My earliest memories of Sandy Ground, people, places, and things. Some of the people that I think about that come to my mind are people like Miss Margaret Garrison, all I remember as a child that she used to always deliver the paper. I believe it was the Staten Island Advance in her car. She was a dark brown skinned woman with glasses. She just drove her car around. Everybody knew about what time she would come. One thing about Sandy Ground is that time, time was something that was always noted and things were done at certain times all the time. I remember there used to be an air raid siren that used to go off every day at 12 o'clock. When that siren went off, you knew that it was 12 o'clock. I remember as a child living in a house with my grandparents, my cousins, my aunts. There were always a lot of people and a lot of family. I always felt safe nurtured and loved by all the adults in the house and in the community. Everybody was a cousin, an aunt, a friend, a family friend, and they always looked out for the children. We used to play games. We didn't have to be like watched all the time. Like now you can't even send your children outside in your front yard without being fearful that something would happen to them. We always knew what time it was for us to come home. We always used to have to take naps. Those of us who weren't in school when we were little, we had to take naps. I remember that a lot of the adults who were home, they used to watch As the World Turns, which was a story, and these are the days of our lives. Every day at a certain time. Those were the stories that came on. And you knew when you heard that, 
These are the days of our lives. It was nap time. I remember my Aunt Byrne used to babysit me when I was a little girl. And she would come to the house. And she would put me in this round like a wash bin. And wash me up. And get me dressed. And we would be off for the day while my mother went to work. I remember Miss Tula. Miss Tula was Miss Anime's mother. Miss Anime was married to Kenneth Landon. And Miss Tula used to come and visit with Miss Anime. And she would always make me collard greens and cornbread. She would just come down and she'd be visiting and always make me collard greens and cornbread. I was a little girl. I don't, I don't know why, but she did. And I remember, I must have liked them because I ate them. I remember every Sunday we had to go to church. We had to go to Sunday school. I believe Nisi, my cousin Nisi, Denise Pedro was the Sunday school teacher at one time. And I remember she grew up to be a school teacher. In church, we had to do Sunday school. I remember when they had a Tom Thumb wedding and I was the flower girl in the Tom Thumb wedding. I remember when we had our pieces, they used to say we have a piece we had to do, which was a part in one of the plays, the Easter play or the Christmas play. In Christmas time, they used to give out these boxes of Christmas candy. I haven't seen those since my childhood, but I always remember I always liked those. I remember the first time I had to take communion. And that's when they gave you the little wafer and they said you drank Jesus' blood. And I remember me and my cousin Kimmy, we went up and we took the communion and we ate the wafer and we drank the, the little, it was grape juice. And we swore we had drunk blood. Oh, I remember when they had the community used to go on picnics at Wolf Pond Park, the whole community would pack up and we'd just go down to Wolf Pond Park. Everybody brought whatever they were eating, our blankets and stuff. And it was a day that the community just went out and left the community and went down to Wolf Pond Park. I remember one time there was a big thunderstorm and it was a lightning storm. All of a sudden it came out of nowhere and everybody was scrambling, just grabbing children, trying to get them out of the rain and out of the lightning and stuff. And somebody had grabbed me and they brought me under their tent. And there was a woman who had gotten electrocuted sitting under the tree. I remember when it had calmed down, you know, people started being reunited with their family members and stuff like that. Whoever it was, I didn't know the people, but they took me, grabbed me out of the rain. I had gotten separated. And then I was, you know, reunited with my family. Sandy Ground. The things that I remembered was that people in the community, everybody worked. An honest day's work brought an honest wage. Everybody took care of their families. Family was, you know, strong. It was a strong bond. Uh, Sandy Ground now, it's changed. Communities changed. A lot of the older people have gotten old and... Well, they've passed on. You have new people in. When I go to Sandy Ground, I still get a feeling of the community that I grew up in 
what I remember Sandy Brown as being, even though it's changed. You know, when I go there, I just, all the memories come back. They haven't changed. Every now and again, I go to the, to the church. That's the church, the Rossville Amy Zion Church is the church that I grew up in. I've since changed my religion to Seventh-day Adventist, but I, you know, that's the church that I was married in. My mother goes there, my family, you know, basically. That's where my family roots are. The thing I miss about the church was the smell. There was like a sweet smell that was in the church all the time. And there was a feeling when you hear the organ playing. And there used to be this picture, this huge picture of Christ when you walk in the church. That picture is gone. To me, that picture brought a lot of warmth and spirituality, an aura of spirituality into the church. That's changed. But nonetheless, it's Rossville. I remember when Olivia, my cousin Olivia sung a lead in the choir and everybody was just so thrilled. They said, oh, Olivia has a beautiful voice. That's one thing about Sandy Brown. It was like, if you didn't have anything good to say, then don't say anything at all. And you do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The golden rule. And everybody had a beautiful voice. And everybody was so handsome and just so beautiful and so nice. People took pride in their appearance, in their accomplishments, in their families. You talked about your growing up. What is it that is different for your children growing up because they didn't grow up in Sandy Ground? Well, for my children, it's different because, see, they get my memories. They're not living in the community where they're surrounded by family and people mm-hmm. who love them and who just have so much to tell them about, you know, their selves. You know, my great-grandparents were alive, and they would talk about their brothers and sisters. I've seen my great-grandparents' brothers and sisters. My kids, they hear stories and they see pictures. You know, we used to have a barbecue at my uncle's house, my Aunt Ollie and Uncle Buster's house. It's like a family reunion. When everybody used to come to get together, you know, they don't have that family barbecue anymore. My children got to see some of it, but they don't do that anymore. So now, you know, if we have a barbecue or something, it's nice, you know, but it's not like the family reunion. I think you said that originally, what you learned in Sandy Ground that made you who you are right now and how you tried to pass that on to your children. Oh, yeah, and one of the things that growing up in Sandy Ground knew about my family. See, family is very important. It's very important to me. And it was through my family and the images that I saw and the interactions that I had, as I said, the feeling of security, love, the nurturing, all of that that I got from my family 
is really the base and gave me my center. When I was in school as a young girl, you know, they always would have stories or portray images of black people as being so poor and our history was one that we had to be slaves because black people couldn't take care of themselves and didn't work and on welfare and all of that stuff. And so that when they had Black History Month in school, they would always tell these stories. And I used to always say, no, no, raise my hand. No, that's not true. Everybody in my family works. Everybody, they were property owners. They worked. They took care of their children. You know, I could say the things that we did, our family traditions and stuff. And my teachers used to always put me out of the class and tell me, just be quiet, you're disrupting the class. They didn't want to hear that. They used to put me out and used to make me sit outside the room. When I talked about Sandy Ground and growing up and what I saw and what we did, and then fast forward years later when I started, you know, going around talking about the history of Sandy Ground, sharing that history of that community on Staten Island, that was a community that came from people who were free, who worked, who were educated, God-fearing, you know, contributed to to Staten Island immensely, to the city. And I would have to go into schools and talk about that history. And it was very often that I'd walk into a school and I'd meet the principal and the staff would come and, hi, how are you? And the principal would look and smile and I'd smile back politely and they'd say, you remember me? And I said, no, I'm sorry. Turned out it was my second grade teacher or my fourth grade teacher. And she said, I remember when you were in my class and I used to always have to ask you to leave because you just kept talking, talking, talking. And here you are, talking, talking, talking. I said, yes, and I'm talking to your students about what I was talking to you about when I was in the second grade. So that was like coming full circle. And that was always nice. I had to do a presentation for educators who wanted to learn about Sandy Ground and you know, how to teach the history and give them some points. And I was doing a presentation, and there was a lady that kept was sitting in the front, and she just kept smiling. And then when I was finished, she came up to me. She said, Julie, she said, I'm so proud of you. And I was like, oh, thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. And she said, you don't remember me? And I said, no. And she says, Mrs. Alexander. And Mrs. Alexander was like one of my favorite teachers. And that was really nice. But... I found out that the history of Sandy Ground, the history of that free black community, and the traditions that people in the community had, and the work ethic, it was all important because I knew what was expected of me, that I had to work, go to school, love the Lord, take care of my family and that and I understood that that wasn't something that was just my history it was history of a lot of people and it was history that people just didn't talk about not realizing that you have those same pictures that I have here in your closets look for them you have the same stories about your family just listen or ask. And I think that doing that 
you know, help people to realize that we're not who everyone else says we are, who we are. You know, we are who we are. We're products of our families. You know, good stuff. I always felt good stuff. I think that it's it's important that you have institutions that are committed to preserving history and promoting history, teaching it. And that's another source of pride for me and a part of my obligation and the legacy that Moses Harris had laid down when he settled or had the wherewithal to come to Staten Island and buy this property and set up a community of free black people where they could work and educate their children. And they interacted with other communities around them on Staten Island and in the city. That's what led up to the formation of the Sandy Ground Historical Society. And the work that the Historical Society does and has done and will continue to do, no matter how the community changes, that history, that history that they promote is important not only to Staten Island, not only to black Staten Island, but to white Staten Island, not only to black New York City, but to white New York City, not only to the black state, but to the white New York state, to the white country, to the black country, because this is American history. And what we're finding now is that the history that we've been told sometimes doesn't serve us well if it's not told accurately. And I think that's what's happening now. History is beginning to be told the way history is. You can't change it. And Julie, what is your current role with the Sandy Ground Historical Society? Right now, I'm the president of the Sandy Ground Historical Society, which is a position that I hold very dear to my heart because, as I said, I think that it's a very worthwhile, noble, important organization and responsibility to continue to teach and promote this history and add to, you know, the history of the community and, and to Staten Island. And people are surprised when they hear about their very own connection to Sandy Ground. You have families with descendants all over the island. I did a presentation for the Museum of the City of New York a couple of years ago about material culture. They just said, bring some stuff. I mean, we just need things. Like somebody had a tool that they used to pick corn or something or anything. They, they were saying, we, we want you to sit. We want you to sit on this panel. Just bring some stuff. So I didn't know what they were talking about, what stuff. So I said, okay. So I just started getting stuff. I had brought stuff that I had gotten out of a closet from a home that my great-grandfather, William Pedro, and his wife, Susan Jane Bishop Pedro, had lived in. 
and they had a closet that was covered by a piece of furniture. And I was talking to my great-grandfather, and I said, what is behind there? And he said, it's a closet full of some stuff. I said, can I go in first? He said, no. Then he told me I could go into it. And I found all of this stuff. There were pictures of his mother, of his brothers and sisters, of his wife's family. There was all kinds of stuff. There was clothing. There were letters. There were shoes. There were all kinds of So I brought all of this stuff out. And then I came across a basket that was used for oystering by an oysterman who had lived in Sandy Ground. I had all of this stuff. So I just said, well, I'll just bring this stuff with me. So I set up a whole corner full of all of this stuff. And as I was talking about the stuff and about the community, this man had raised his hand and talked about how he had lived on Staten Island for a while and he was a doctor and his name is Dr. Miles. And I was like, Dr. Miles, I remember being a little girl and I remember Dr. Miles. At that time I had lived in the Berry Houses because there was a fire in 1963 and I lived out in Sandy Ground at that time for that fire. And then we went to stay with my aunt, my aunt Marie, God rest her soul, in the Berry Houses. And Dr. Miles had an office on Richmond Road. And he was saying his name was Dr. Miles and his wife had a cousin who was from Sandy Ground, and they were very, very close. And this cousin used to travel to wherever they had lived at the time in Long Island or Asbury Park. And she mentioned the cousin's name was May Pedro Moody. And that was my grandmother. I said, that's my grandmother. And his wife was there. She said she was my cousin. But she had also stories of Sandy Ground. Someone else stood up and said they lived in Ohio. And their father had been a friend of someone, had served in the military with someone who lived, was marrying somebody, a girl from Sandy Ground. This was going to be a huge wedding. And they were writing letters back and forth talking about preparation and what they were going to do for this wedding. And when the woman mentioned the person's name, I said, oh, I know that family. They lived on Sandy Ground. They were relatives also. So what I found was that people from even different parts of the country had connections to Sandy Ground. And from what I could gather, there was a lot of traveling back and forth, even in terms of schooling. People were sending their children to different schools around the country, you know, from Sandy Ground. Education was something that people held in very high esteem in Sandy Ground. You had to get your education. There was never anybody who they called a dummy. No one was ever retarded. The word that they used then was retarded, mentally challenged, anybody. Everybody functioned to their highest capacity. That's how they was taught. That's how they were raised. Basic things, how to count your change, how to write your name, you know, just things. So everyone had confidence. It was a community that brought forth people who were confident in whatever they set out to do. One of the things that I am doing to ensure that this legacy of Sandy Round continues is as my mother did with me, included me in the research and sharing of the Sandy Ground history and being a part of the Sandy Ground Historical Society. 
Now my son Idris Ojelade, Idris Kolawole Adeshino Ojelade, is now a member of the board of directors of the Sandy Round Historical Society. My grandson, Amir Adeshino Ojelade, participates in the film about the history of Sandy Ground. He's 12 years old now, but he's been around the museum growing up, going to festivals. When Idris was a baby, he came to every board meeting that I went to, every project that I worked on, volunteering along the way, participating, and now he sits as a board member. My granddaughter, Juliana Egbike Ojelade, she's 18 months old. She's now featured on one of our quilts that talks about the history and the different families in Sandy Ground. So we recognize our obligation and our duty to be present and active in promoting the Sandy Ground history and supporting the Sandy Ground Historical Society. We owe it to our ancestors. We understand that. We owe it to our ancestors to keep this effort going. We are so pleased that it is being recognized through the city of New York, through the naming of a ferry boat after Sandy Ground, a school in the community named after Sandy Ground. We're just very, very pleased. lived in Sandy Ground for more than 90 years before she passed away in 2018. She was considered the matriarch of the community. Sargent was born in 1920. She gave birth to and raised five children in Sandy Ground. Her interview with the Sandy Ground Oral History Project, created by the New York Public Library, was conducted about a year before her passing. I'm talking to uh, Miss Lillian Sargent, and she's lived in Sandy Ground for almost 90 years. Mm -hmm. And she still lives in Sandy Ground, and she's going to tell us how she came and what life was like then, and then what life is like now. Yeah. Good morning, Miss Lil. <laughs> oh, well. Okay. How how did you come to Sandy Ground? It was uh, to I think uh, it was Mabel, and she introduced us, and we married. Okay, 
and you moved to Sandy Ground. Yeah. They were outstanding, what do you call it, figures in there, hmm. in the town, because they were known by Bishop Thurston. Oh, okay. Yeah. Were your children born in Sandy Ground? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, all of them. Where in Sandy Ground did you live? We lived in next to yous. Claypit? Yeah. On Claypit Road. Yeah. Oh, okay. I think that was the first house. Mm-hmm. And what was the town like? What was it like? Well, uh, were people friendly? Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, very friendly. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. And they mingled more with each other. Oh, okay. You know, than average people. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, was it a close-knit community? Well, did people look out for one another? I would say they did, mm -hmm. but they didn't, you know, mind each other's business. Like. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> How did the adults treat the children in the community? Oh, well, it's like a little league, and they come up through the, the little league into adulthood and played ball. Uh-huh. And so that my time was taken up with them. Mm -hmm. And my mother had to do housework. Mm-hmm. Okay. But we managed, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. So what did your husband do? He was a mechanic. Uh-huh. Yeah. He was a full-fledged mechanic on the corner of Claypit and Bloomingdale. Yeah. Was it Bloomingdale? Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And where did his customers come from? Well, mostly they had both the black and the white, but the white was the ones that spent the money. <laughs> <laughs> He didn't show any favoritism. Okay. If you mind your car fix, all right, get okay. a fix. Okay. You know, and he made time to do it. So who kept the books? Did you keep the books? As such as they were. Okay. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was busy with five... But four children. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, your children grew up here. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. They were raised there. Mm -hmm. And yeah. did you feel safe with them going out to play? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Well, like, practiced at, at, at Tompkins Field, and it was always one of them practicing. Mm-hmm. That's, That's why the boys we, with the baseball? Yeah. Yes, okay. And so that, that, that was busy times. Mm-hmm. And were they good? Huh? Were they good? Oh, they were, they, they were good. Charlie was the best one. I don't know. Charlie How much? was the best one. She thought Charlie was the best. Yeah, because he, he helped with the team. His son? Yeah, his son Charlie. Oh. 
Well, that was one of them times when mm-hmm. <laughs> I was so busy, I didn't know my feet from my head. Did the playing baseball allow any of them to go to college? Oh, yeah, that, that they could go to college. That's what, you know, they stood for. What is it like living out here now? as opposed to what it looked like living out here before. So do you know your neighbors like you knew your neighbors when when it was Oh no. Around? Oh no. <laughs> Did you have bus service up and down Bloomingdale Road then? Yeah, but it was only an hour apart. Oh. Yeah. yeah. And where did it run? Down at on Arthur Road? Yeah. And so did you have to walk uh, down uh, there? And you walked to... Arthur Kill. Yeah, Arthur Kill Road. And so that was a considerable hike then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was. Uh, Where did the children go to school? PS3. PS3. And then... uh, Was it Tottenville High School? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Tottenville High. They were were good students. I mean, as far as uh, the baseball was concerned, uh, they liked baseball, Mm -hmm. and that's why. Okay. Is there anything else that you can remember about Sandy Ground, say 50 or 60 years ago, what it was like. Uh, Did you do things as a community? Some people that I talk to say that the community would get together and they'd all go down to Wolf's Pond. Oh, yeah. That was, that was average. Yeah. They would go down and there would be like a community picnic down there. That's right. Mm-hmm. They said yeah. the men would hold the tables. Uh, yeah. And you guys would spend the day at the beach, the whole town. Uh, yeah. One of my other interviewers said that they used to rent a bus and take the kids over to Kingsburg to go on the ride. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did that give you a day off when the kids were gone? <laughs> oh no, I, I took them. Oh, uh, you went they with them. A picnic. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. All right, you went with them. Okay. Now tell me about Bishop Sargent. He he was a minister. Yeah, he was a minister. And what was the name of the church? Pentecostal Faith. Okay. And did you attend that church? Yeah. Yes, you did. Okay. Uh, after we learned about holiness, mm-hmm. why we, you know, we switched. I see those beautiful pictures on the wall. Are they your grandchildren? Uh, yeah. Oh my! I didn't. I I don't know where to put them. There's even pictures over here. Mm-hmm. So how many grandchildren do you have? Oh, I can't. <laughs> It's really a miracle, and they're in college now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Okay. I think. How many children did Robbie have? Two. Two. And the other one had two. And Larry had? Two. Two. And Charlie had? Two? Did you say Two. Yeah, Charlie, I think, had, had, had two daughters, right? Yeah. Yes. And Shirley I, had one. Uh, oh, well, yeah. you wouldn't know. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, that's right. That looks like seven grandchildren. Uh, and then, then, then great grands. Oh, you got great grands, too. Yeah. Oh, how nice. <laughs> how nice. Yes. <laughs> Isn't that nice? Uh, well, God has been good. Uh, yeah, he's been good, but you know, it, it costs money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But isn't that what your money is for? Uh, yeah. To help your family? Uh, yeah. So now, your father-in-law... Yeah. He used to shoe horses, right? Yeah, and... Uh, Cleaning cesspools. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. So the men in your family are, 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 are businessmen. Yeah. Providing a service to the community, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They would take anything mm -hmm. and, and make it work. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so you married a good man. <laughs> <laughs> so that a good provider. Yeah, that that's mm -hmm. it. Cause not all the women stayed home, did oh, they? Oh no. Mm-hmm. And I I don't find no fault mm -hmm. with that. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. you gotta work. You gotta work. Mm -hmm. That's all. Mm-hmm. You know. So now, what for you was the nicest thing about living in Sandy Ground? All those years, uh, I, uh, was it the people? Was it, it the landscape? It was, you know, everything together. It was country. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. And so, you know, you adapted to it right away. So, does anybody come by to visit you now? I see that you're. You're in the wheelchair. I assume you don't get out too much. No, I've, I've, I've really been very sick, but I don't like to dwell mm -hmm. on that. I, okay. I do all I can mm -hmm. to help in that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so tell me about the church and how, the Rossville Church, and how they interact with you. Oh, I... Uh, I like the uh, Sister Jones mm -hmm. very, very much. I remember coming to services in your yard. Yeah. Yes. The church yeah. came to you. Yeah, that's right. Yes, yes. Uh, did you enjoy and, and, that? Uh, and Mochico was the, the star of that. Myra. Myra. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was enjoyable, was it not? Uh, yes, it was. Mm -hmm. And do they come by with food? Oh, yeah. 
Okay. Oh, yeah. They, they I d tell them not, you know, mm -hmm. not to, but they, they, they don't listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we all pull together. Okay. So, that, so is, you know. So it, that there's still a sense of community uh, here. Yeah. And that's good, isn't it? To me, it's good. Okay. All right. Okay. And I come by every now and then, right? You're right. Mm -hmm. You're right. And does Tina? Uh huh. Well, we we consider you the matriarch of the community. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. oh yes. <laughs> oh, I know. Yes. And and we care very much about Not you, and we're yeah. so glad that we still have you here. Well. Uh, it was touch and go for now. I, I'm on a man. community in Newtown, located in what would become Queens, New York. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform. Drop us a comment if you want to share your feedback. All of this helps us get the word out and keep doing this work. Oh, my God.